All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined by repeat guest Jordy Alexander, who is the CIO at Cellini Capital. Jordy, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, I want to start uh, kind of high level and get your macro thesis, let's say, for the next 12 months. Um, for listeners' benefit, you guys should all go and listen to an interview that Jordy gave in December of 2021 on Up Only, where he literally calls credit where credit is due, Jordy, almost to the month, exactly what has happened and played out for the first uh, seven months of this year. So that's why I got to ask you, like, high level, what are the most important things that you're paying attention to? What's your kind of macro framework, let's say, for the next 12 months? Yeah, sure. I mean, number one is liquidity, right? Like the concept of liquidity drives so much in terms of financial markets, asset prices, and also kind of filters down through the economy in, in, in various ways, uh, obviously inflation, as, as we've seen. So um, at the time, people were kind of underwater and they just got used to the water and there was so much liquidity that they were surrounded by that they forgot that like this is not necessarily a permanent state. There's also air and they just hadn't experienced it in, in, in quite a while. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, obviously there's, there's been an extreme amount of air, especially in certain markets more than others. Uh, but there's what, what we've been seeing is, um, liquidity situation has moderated. I wouldn't say that. So there's still liquidity going around the system. So that's, that's something I keep an eye on. Uh, we can see that households and companies, especially in the U S and, um, you know, certain other developed nations still have a lot of cash. So that's very important and it changes the narrative in terms of, are we done with inflation? Are we done with tightening? Um, I don't think that we can be done until like liquidity gets under control and that might take a few more rinses, uh, you know, of, of those uh, cash amounts being kind of dwindled down before we have, you know, a panic of, of buying real assets as we've seen. Uh, so that's, you know, one big thing I, I keep an eye on. The other thing is, of course, is relative interest rates across the world, which ultimately I believe is what drives currencies rather than, um, you know, lack of dollars in countries that use, use dollar loans. Um, I think interest rates and interest rate policies are, are crucial. Um, and of course, you know, we're, we're kind of waiting to see the dial that the central banks take between inflation and recession and exactly like where they want to go with that. So I keep an eye on what they say. I, I want to always know for tactical purposes, like month to month, but ultimately it doesn't really matter. Like they will be forced into certain things that, you know, they might try to tighten too soon or they might try to over tighten. Those things can matter in the short run, like when you're trading month to month, but when you're trading like on a six month horizon, it doesn't really matter because they will get dictated by the economy. So what are those larger macro forces, right? You kind of talked about liquidity being one force. I know a strong dollar is something that you pay attention to. Why don't we actually start with the strong dollar, right? Because we had um, Brent uh, kind of on the show recently, and he was explaining his dollar milkshake theory of liquidity getting sucked up into a scarce dollar. And that explains the outperformance of the Dixie, uh, despite, you know, a nine, handle C a nine handle on CPI in the US. So why do you think that we're experiencing a strong dollar? Why is that an important thing to pay attention to on the macro stage? Yeah, I mean, it, it is true that the US has had this privilege of, you know, the currency that is used around the world that, it, that they can print and people will still have demand for. And a lot of it is driven by local currencies cannot really be used as reliable loans, especially for international purposes, because they are not... Mm being uh, printed at a reliable rate and the US dollar was kind of considered a bit more reliable. So it's kind of used as a benchmark for, for various reasons. But what we saw during 2020, when it really came down to it, you know, the Fed was able to create as many dollars as needed in these bilateral um, uh, central bank 
you know, uh, I forget what they call them now, but the bilateral deposit. Sorry, it's like um, we'll look it up. We'll, we'll, we'll look we'll, it up. We'll get the we'll get the name. Yeah, uh, Will Will, my man. Okay, <laughs> he's the man behind on the margin. Will Beaumont, shout out, Will. Um, but what what we've seen is that the the Fed can make dollars available internationally very easily in huge amounts, huge quantities, whatever is needed if if there is a crisis. So uh, ultimately, what's happening is the U.S. is being forced to raise interest rates, and other countries are lagging. They're starting to also raise interest rates, but um, you know places like Japan might not really want to get to three four percent interest rates because their economy cannot handle it, or the way that their debt is structured cannot handle it. So there is a preference for dollars right now. I think ultimately that gets abused. So my thesis is that mm. this dollar strength starts getting abused because it allows them to print more dollars. Um, so of course, it's not that simple. They can't just create dollars. There's a whole process. You know, printing money is not as simple as printing money. Um, you know, they can buy bonds and, and they can create like a larger balance sheet, which ultimately needs to get repaid. But it is printing money. And ultimately, we can imagine a world where the government thinks about what to do with this money and they can, it's purchasing power that they can use to buy foreign goods uh, with these dollars. They can buy foreign bonds. You know, we, we've seen um, Arthur Hayes article, for example, suggesting that yeah. the path of least resistance is that they just buy uh, Euro and yen denominated bonds. In essence, that solves the dollar problem because you've created more dollars, you've created more supply. And at the same time, you've, you've helped these economies out. Um, it's not clear if you've helped them out because they start owing you <laughs> their currency. They start owing you debt. So you've bought their debt and at some point they have to repay it. Uh, but it at least alleviates the immediate problem. Yeah, absolutely. What about um, like connect this idea of liquidity in this system, right? Because you have you have kind of two injectors depending on how you look at it. You've got the Fed and you've got the Treasury, right? The Treasury is the issuer of bonds. The Fed is the one who ends up buying those bonds. Everything that we've seen beginning in March of 2020 with this like crazy liquidity bazooka has basically been the Fed injecting liquidity into the system. Now we're starting to see them eke that back right through quantitative tightening, which has only just only just started, right? But markets have responded in a really big way. Walk us through what your framework is for liquidity and how that actually you know impacts asset prices. And then, do you think we've seen the worst of that receding liquidity? I.e., is the Fed going to be at some point? Uh, kind of forced right into like some sort of pivot stance? Are they going to try to cheat and inject liquidity in uh, less obvious ways than just the bond buying program that they've had? Uh, like what's your what's your sort of liquidity outlook for the course of the next like six, six, 12 months? Yeah, sure. I mean, every time they do QE, we see that it lasts for a very long time. And then when they do, when they do QT, it seems to be a lot shallower. And each time the balance sheet <laughs> just grows because yeah. it's very unbalanced. So uh, I expect a lot of that to go forward and then it just becomes a new normal used to be like 1 trillion, then 5 trillion, and you know, now we're getting towards 10 trillion, like the, the kind of deficits and the, the amount of balance sheet that the Fed can ultimately sustain will keep going up. And there is like an indirect inflation that's happening. They're inflating the debt and everything kind of, you know, the music goes on. But what we've seen, right. and this is kind of the critical point that I think will ultimately drive everything, and this matters more than asset prices going down is actually uh, people and people who feel that they are no longer able to have purchasing power starting to be very discontent. And the amount of discontent will increase dramatically. It's already been increasing in recent years because of, um, you know, what's considered to be like unfair systems and tax the rich and eat the rich and 
occupy them and, and like all this kind of uh, behavior that we've seen. Trump kind of slowed that down because a lot of the poor people had to politically align themselves with, you know, the billionaire class for a while. But ultimately, I think mm. populism, as we've seen with Bernie, as we've seen with, you know, parts of what Donald Trump says, is clearly going to win out. And, and this is happening across the world. We've seen it like in Europe as well. So the thesis that I have, um, which I only see one way through this, is ultimately nothing else matters. The Fed will try to keep asset prices maybe from completely collapsing. But what's going to be the ultimate solution is providing soft UBI. Um, I don't want to call it UBI because it's not going to be universal. It'll be targeted to specific people and for specific expenses. But it'll try to make the lives of people who are suffering better off so that they keep social cohesion. Um, because ultimately, their mandate of all these people, you know, for the Fed, it's uh, price stability, it's full employment, all these, all these different institutions have mandates. But the number one mandate is social cohesion. If you lose social cohesion, then you're not a country. So that will supersede everything else. I tend to agree with you there. Um, you know, there's the people like to talk about the there's the dual mandate of the Fed, right? Uh, with price stability and unemployment being there, and people say, well, price stability supersedes unemployment. But I think there is an even more important, like, right? You're a very good first principles thinker, right? Why is price stability up there? Because really, what they want to do is keep the freaking country together, right? And they're uh, they're arguably doing a so-so to you know trending in the wrong direction job of that. So walk us through the, that though. Why do you think that UBI or some form of targeted UBI has to be the answer? And then what's your guess for how that ends up getting implemented, right? So like what groups of people, right, end up getting those, that relief, like how is that decided? And then what is the transmission mechanism, right? So how do those funds get transferred to people? Right. So there's two main tools that you can imagine for wealth redistribution, which is kind of what we're talking about, which is necessary. One is taxation mm -hmm. and one is benefits. So you can direct benefits at only certain people in certain ways, and you can tax only the rich or only certain types of income. So I think that both of those, we will start seeing very, we're already starting to see very creative ideas for both. We had, for example, very recently in Spain, they're taxing the banks 5% on the profits, and they're taking that money that's earmarked for that, and they're basically saying free trains. Why do trains and banks have anything to do with each other, and why are the banks paying for trains? This is like the creative kind of redistribution concepts that we'll start to see like more and more in, in like very large scales than, than we've currently seen. So this is like in, in many countries now, um, they will be called different things. You know, you will start having he like very like heavy language, like fairness and redistribution. And of course you'll have the basics we've already seen, like inflation relief is like one that we've, we're seeing in California and like you're seeing in the UK mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, with energy prices. So the problem with taxation and using taxation is it's notoriously difficult, first of all, to pass taxation because the, the power is very much in the hands of uh, the lobbyists. And, you know, you see in the United States how impossible it is to really pass broad uh, tax increases, even when they're sorely needed. And even when you do pass them, of course, you know, lawyers will get involved for like the, 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 0.01%, um, and they'll find ways around it. They'll move everything abroad. So taxes will happen, but they are very hard to enforce. What's easy to enforce is um, benefits that are given in a very popular way that actually don't help inflation. But like we said, there's going to be something that supersedes it. So 
um, what do, what do people need to spend money on? They need to spend money on, uh, you know, rent. They need to spend money on gas. They need to spend money on food. Like these are the basic human needs. If you just look at Maslow's hierarchy, you know, you you have to kind of take care of that first, first base. So the government will kind of step in and make sure that people are taken care of on, on that level. Um, but of course this is not going to solve inflation, right? No, it should make it worse, right? And before we get on to the reason for why that should actually make it worse, I do just want to point out to people, if you're sitting there saying, well, this is America, this would be unprecedented, this would never happen. This has happened numerous times throughout history, right? There's a really good book, Lessons of History, written by Will Arnett. And he literally has this section where he describes this. You know, There's a, a continuous problem of actually a state that does really well is it produ- tends to produce wealth inequality. And then you step in in one of two ways. And he has this great line. It's like either the redistribution of wealth or there's revolution, which redistributes poverty, which is like a really good line. Uh, But even before that, it's like Roman empire, bread and circuses, which is kind of what you're describing, right? Like in their uh, estimation of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, what people really wanted was food and entertainment, you know? Um, So it's something that's been around for a long period of time. But walk me through like how this ends up impacting, how does this like social thing of like UBI basically transfer payments, right? To support the most base needs of of people in the United States. Like how does that kind of ripple through into financial markets? Because like, even when I was watching like Gavin Newsom, right. And he had this, uh, he reduced what the gas tax in California, which makes it easier for people to spend money on gas. That should also drive the price of gas up. Right. So all of these programs, I assume is inflationary. I don't know what you, what your thought is on that. They are inflationary in my my base case for inflation is that it'll come in cycles. It won't go away. Um, it is true that we will start at some point getting 0% month on month readings, which will kind of keep in prices stable for a few months and then it'll just spike again. So the year on year will not like come down to 2% or like 3%. I think it'll kind of hover around four or 5% and it'll be in spurts around like a lot of these events where, you know, there's injections. And then once the injection gets digested, then prices spike and then we kind of like, you know, slow down again. And this is what I imagine as stagnation and stagflation is, is kind of getting stuck in this loop. And I think, um, a lot of the correlations in financial markets are in this like loop where, you know, if, if yields start to go down, then asset prices start to go up and then you see companies over hiring and overspending again. And so inflation goes up and then you kind of like force them to tighten. So everything is circular right now. Like the, the way that um, the forces are set up, there is like a negative feedback loop. So that will kind of like keep us going in, in this for quite a long time, I think. Um, now in terms of exactly how these benefits filter through and how they're implemented, you know, when you think about things from a first principles perspective, it's it's easier actually to look at the end game and look at the equilibrium and how do things end up. And it's pretty clear that the wealth that's going to get injected, the purchasing power that's going to be kind of loosened into the economy, it can't keep going to asset prices because those are owned by like, you know, 10% of people, 20% of people. So even though there's some, some like follow through, ultimately they they will have to create wealth targeted for like, you know, the 50, 60% of people that's going to be like the politically expedient thing to do. So tactically, um, there's a few ways that can happen and we can speculate and we can think like, which, you know, imagine like a wall and there's like a huge wave of water kind of coming to the wall. We don't know which holes in the wall it's going to get through, but it's going to get through. So, um, you know, that's a tactical concern trying to figure out exactly what 
bill is going to pass and which politician is going to propose it and, and who's going to end up being president. But I can assure you that water will get through the other side of that wall. <laughs> yeah. All right. I love, so what is that end game that you were just kind of hinting at there? Because I got to be honest with, again, with a lens towards history. I mean, I've like the populism, I totally agree with you, right? It's, it's funny because in America, if you, if you polled people, right. And said, how similar are Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump? You know, it's totally separate, right? Like this guy, I love Bernie, right. Or I love Trump, right. They are two sides of the same coin, right? This is a strain of populism. It's been around, you know, since the dawn of time, what, like, I don't know if you, you also love uh, looking at this through history, but like doesn't have a great success rate for countries that end up succumbing to populism. But I also don't see a way around it. I think it's like you're, you're a Sisyphus, right? Pushing the boulder up the hill. Like if you kind of stomp down one, uh, you know, one politics, like, like they did with, with Trump, right? Like we got him out of office, but it doesn't matter because the next time I think you do see um, a a uh, populist president that implements these policies. So like describe exactly what that end game is. And then let's have a little fun here. Let's speculate. Like what are some of the ways that the water can trickle through the wall to use your example? Yeah, I mean, there's going to be big reactions and reactions to the reactions. So what I see as being the most likely scenario is that CBDCs at some point end up being kind of like the power, the power tool. You know, this is the Trump card, mm. um, no pun intended, where you will, I mean, <laughs> we'll see who ends up being the president. But regardless, uh, CBDCs across the world will give central banks and governments power that they've never had before. Not just on the privacy side, which is like, you know, something that is separate from all this, but really on the kind of control, they'll be able to target things very directly. And even the Fed that we've seen um, since uh, 2020, they have started to target the economy directly. And there's there's been right. ways that they circumvent the financial system and assets, and they go straight to, uh, you know, incentivizing certain behaviors. When we... We have seen this before, obviously, with like the housing market where, you know, there, there are certain segments of, of, uh, of the economy that are targeted. But ultimately, CBDCs give you the level of granularity where you can really decide who gets purchasing power, when do they have to spend it, where can they spend it. Um, you know, in Singapore, we're seeing very interesting experiments where you get, you get a text message on your app. It's saying, congratulations, uh, you know, you just got $200. You have to spend it at the food centers that you know, are part of this program and you have like two months to do it. So this is not even a CBDC. This is just like kind of dollars that are put into your like national account. But that that's exactly like the type of thing that can be used to direct money and purchasing power and avoid the problems that we're describing where, you know, if you just loosen the economy, it goes to the wrong people. It goes to like the, the asset rich yeah. And there was, there was an example of this, the Fed trying to intervene, right? I mean, 2020 saw a slew of, of, of Fed intervention that was pretty unprecedented, right? They bought um, corporate bonds. But the other thing that they did that was actually a pretty big deal, I don't think it ended up really getting used all that much, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was the direct lending facility. It was like the main street lending facility where the Fed was actually going to try to lend to small business. And the whole reason why I view this as being meaningfully, like very, very important is uh, again, with a view towards history, like when there are these sorts of situations, right? The next sort of thing that happens is nationalization of businesses, price controls, and administrative bloat, right? The administration sees all these negative things happening and they try to get their hands on it, right? Which might, you could kind of like, you know, like put cement over some of those cracks uh, in the intermediate term, but it tends to be unsuccessful long term. And then the other thing too that I think about listening to you, and we've talked about this on the show before about CBDCs, is, um, 
you know, Lacey Hunt has this thing where you, really what you don't want is the liabilities of the Fed to be direct legal tender, right? That's extremely inflationary because then the whole reason we have the Treasury and the Fed separate is so that the liabilities of the Federal Reserve do not become legal tender, which would be extremely inflationary. So I guess let, let's, sorry, I keep breaking this into two-part questions for you. Let's actually address the Lacey Hunt thing first. Do you see that as a big problem that the liabilities of the Fed would basically be legal tender in a CBDC type scenario? Yeah. I mean, in terms of like what actually causes inflation, the money has to kind of get out into people who want to spend it. You know, when you, when you just give money to, um, banks that are not lending it out, obviously that's not actually creating inflation and it's, it's not getting into like the real economy. So mm. the, the ultimate question that we have to think about is when purchasing power is limited, because what we've seen is there's a limited supply as well. Like we've, we've talked only about the demand side of, uh, of the equation, but a lot of the inflation that we're seeing is on the supply side as well. They're both kind of adding up. Like yeah. we can't know if 9% is four and a half percent, four and a half percent, or if it's like three and six. And I think those things kind of shift a lot. And obviously, you know, energy is spiking all over the place and they're trying to use core inflation as, as being like more steady and, and more predictive of, of getting around like the short-term spikes, but it is coming from both sides. And we are entering an era where, as, as we're just seeing right now, you know, with, with kind of like China and Russia, we are going to have potentially like less globalization. Like there will be like more supply issues as well. So both sides of the equation are adding up into like this sustained reduction in goods. You know, there's not stuff, there's, there's a limited amount of stuff. Um, and my, my model for like all these things is people are happy to kind of accrue dollars in a bank account and that doesn't cause inflation because it's just, something that they, they're happy to, to be rich, you know, they're saving things. But then at some point there's like a rush for the exits and, you know, I don't want to bring up crypto too much, but we do see this in crypto where, you know, a token like Olympus DAO or something, it just kind of accrues, accrues, it goes up and up and up and up. And then suddenly when somebody wants to spend it, everybody else rushes out and everybody wants to spend it to buy like real stuff. So the dollar is actually, even though we, you know, it's the strongest currency, it's still just fiat. It's just, it's just paper. Ultimately, like it can get debased and people will go through these spurts of wanting to buy real assets. And when they're seeing all the houses on their street starting to get, you know, sold and, you know, they have plans to buy a house, uh, to upgrade or whatever they want to do, they will use all their savings to rush and at the same time buy that house. And we'll kind of like have these inflationary spikes, which is people trying to get out of the shit coin. So the shitcoin being the U.S. dollar in this case into like a real asset, which you know, in in is like a house or it could be like real goods, like a car, used cars even, end up being like the real asset. To your point, I do see a bunch of inflationary forces kind of stacking up. We've got geopolitical stress, which is going to limit the abilities of companies to outsource supply chains, borrow from low cost labor pools. That's one really big thing, right? We've got uh, you know everything that you're just discussing basically, which is. Um, you know, there's like the supply and demand side, right? We, we print dollars. That's how the Fed tends to solve problems. We've got demand side inflation. And then um, finally, the, the thing to me that's just so interesting is like we have the same, it's been the same thing that's worked, right? For the last 20 years, like the way the government gets through, we print more money and it seems to paper over the problem. Whereas like that, this might be where the rubber kind of meets the road. So like how effective do you see the government at kind of tamping down and, and getting us through all these problems versus like, what are the, what are the, what is the risk surface area that they might not be fully exploring? Uh, yeah. So, so to answer your question, um, I think we're going to see some very interesting geopolitical games where, uh, you know, ultimately it's going to be everyone for themselves. Everyone's going to have to look 
after their own people, their own local people. So, you know, the dollar starts becoming a weapon that like we talked about, they can print, they can get out of their own problems here in the United States, as long as other countries are willing to buy dollars and buy bonds and kind of be willing to accept the dollar. So I think the way this plays out is the dollar at some point, uh, as Jeffrey Gunluck and others have talked about, the end game for the dollar is to get weaker and to be threatened mm-hmm. as the reserve currency because it will get abused. It will get abused because as long as it's in that status, it will be too tempting to kind of keep using it to support, you know, the the local population and create more purchasing power for uh, the local economy. And that, of course, help hurts like the international economy. So as long as that dollar is in that position, it will be too tempting to, to use it for that purpose. So at some point, there will be a backlash against the dollar. The, the question is what happens then? And that's where it gets very interesting. So um, I don't think many countries around the world will be thrilled to use like a digital yuan. Um, I'm sure China will try to popularize it as much as possible. The euro is in a whole different other world of, world of hurt. I mean, the, the euro, first of all, as a concept has, you know, what we've always known, uh, like you said, it's kind of worked for 20 years now. You know, the euro has survived with, with like printing money and helping Spain and Italy and Greece at the right times and kind of keeping it up. But we're at the point where a lot of these like cycles are are starting to like hit inflation that they didn't do before. Mm. And, you know, how are they going to keep blowing BTP spreads between Germany and, and Italy, for example, from blowing out? They're saying that, trust us, like we we... We, we're like putting some fancy names on things and we will we will get involved and we'll find a way to do it. But I think uh, when the market calls their bluff, they will start having quite a hard time. And especially yeah. if the, the political situation in Italy is not one that they trust now that they've lost Draghi, who was obviously, you know, as, as the ECB chair, he's somebody that is very much, you know, trusted by everyone at the ECB. If you start having a politician in charge who's very populist and, and talking like anti-Europe Europe rhetoric, Will they go so far as to, you know, sacrifice their economies for Italy? I don't think so. So you start seeing that Europe has kind of done this crazy experiment, which was try to increase political unity by having monetary unity. And I think it's very likely that countries start falling out of the euro if um, their interest rate policy, their monetary policy does not line up with the whole. So the euro will not necessarily challenge the dollar either because they're going to have possibly exits. I do think the, the political unity of Europe stays because you know, of threats like, like Russia, as we've just seen, will cause the political unity of Europe to stay together. But in terms of like the, the monetary unity, um, the single currency, the common currency, that will be very threatened. And I think Italy will, will probably be the first one in the next two years, I would say, depending on you know, who gets elected and, and what their policies will be, um, where I, I just see that that will be a huge problem. So um, what's left? Uh, you know, I'm sure Bitcoin people would love to say like, this is where like hyper Bitcoinization comes in. And like, this is, this is the alternative. Um, Mm -hmm. maybe to some extent, like, I think there will be a subsection Mm -hmm. of the global population. Like you will see people in, in different countries, uh, adopt Bitcoin and, um, it will become like, like a global piggy bank in a way. Uh, but Mm -hmm. I don't see Bitcoin as being following the kind of example of what El Salvador did, where it will be like a national currency that, you know, companies will need to have on their balance sheet. I see it as more of like a, a populist reaction to the, um, the fiat kind of control that's been given and people will want to have something that's not controlled. 
And it's possible that, you know, the amount of people that use Bitcoin 10 X's, but it still doesn't mean it will be, you know, in the central bank balance sheet. I know you're an advocate for uh, Bitcoin and just sound money generally, right? Like I listened to an interview you did where you actually held some of your trading gains in gold uh, <laughs> before discovering Bitcoin, which is awesome. Um, walk me through like the bull case for Bitcoin. If you had to just say like, here's what the ultimate vision of what it can be, here's how it might get there. And then walk me through kind of the bear case and maybe we could dig in deeper to some of the problems that you were just alluding to. So let's start with the bull case. Like how could the hyper Bitcoinization be right? Or maybe, maybe, maybe differently phrased, what is the ultimate best outcome that you see Bitcoin realistically achieving? I see so many problems with it becoming the global one currency. I mean, apart from, you know, the long-term issues that Bitcoin still needs to figure out. So Bitcoin's greatest mm -hmm. strength is its greatest weakness. Its greatest strength is that it's very predictable. You know what it is, it's not changing. And, you know, the core Bitcoin is so against change that, you know, they will fight these like big block wars and they will just keep carrying on with a tiny block. They will fight any change to the protocol. So even if somebody says, guys, like we need to fix like the security concern at some point, you know, in a hundred years, like miners will not be incentivized to uh, create uh, security for the network because they're not getting enough Bitcoin. The strength, which is the predictability and the immutability and like nobody wants to change anything, will at certain points become a huge weakness because when there's a need to pivot, uh, right. you know, there might be a lot of people who just say, well, it doesn't matter. Just, just let it die. Like just let it kind of get exploited. You know, doesn't matter if, if there's no miners, like it has to stay immutable. Like there will be like these orthodox kind of Bitcoiners as, as we've seen them, like, you know, they're very loud. Um, so that's like a huge weakness as well. And things that hold Bitcoin back, like for example, the denomination, you know, there's 21 million Bitcoin. When you have billions of people potentially using this thing, it probably sounded better to them to have more than one Bitcoin rather than have 0 0.006 you know, Bitcoin. So no one is going to allow that to happen though. Like no one is going to, if we just say, Hey guys, let's add like a million. So it's 21, you know, trillion. And then, you know, people can just have a lot of them because that's what they're used to with dollars. They're used to having a lot of, of the currency. It'll still be everything the same. We, we just like add some zeros to the end. The, the orthodoxy will just like fight that. Like, no, this is like how it was intended. Like we're not going to touch anything. So I can't see scenarios where Bitcoin becomes much bigger than, um, you know, a, a freedom tool and a kind of like a flag for like liberals around the world and, and people who want to kind of take their democracy into their own hand and like have their monetary control. And that's still very big. I mean, uh, you know, many multiples from where we are now. Um, but is this going to be what countries use as their currency? Probably not. They want to, they will want to keep monetary control on, under, under themselves. Drew, let me ask you almost like an ontological question here. Do you think there is a perfect structure for a monetary system that can last for let's say thousands of years. Because if you go back and look at different monetary systems that we've had, my mental framework for it is you pick one, it's not perfect, it works for a certain period of time, and then things get so bad, like the fatal flaw of that monetary system gets so bad that you do a counter reaction to it, right? And you go all the way in the other direction, then that works for a little while, and you're kind of making this like seesaw progress forward. But like, do you, do you think there is something out there that we just haven't discovered yet that's uh, the perfect monetary solution here? Or are we just doomed to kind of figuring out like incrementally better systems and we're just gonna do this kind of back and forth? I think, you know, people 
I mean, I've thought about this a lot over the years, and I think there are characteristics that are perfect, that, you know, this is the mm. characteristic ultimately that you want. Um, now, whether there's a system that can take all the perfect characteristics and, and put them together, it's very difficult because one of the things that, that you want to have, for example, is like uh, a reasonably fair distribution. You can't have some people, you know, if you take Bitcoin, for example, if, you know, uh, the Winklevosses end up having like 5% of the world's like purchasing power because they just refuse to sell their Bitcoin and they, they just want to write it up to like Valhalla, right? Um, right. So at, at some point, like the unfairness of the distribution will end up being so great, the, the system will collapse upon itself. It'll, it'll kind of be like the reaction that you talked about. So creating a fair distribution, whatever that means, which we can, we can discuss what that means, that's the perfect characteristic. But in terms of what system can most closely like, you know, fit onto that line. Um, it's hard to say, you know, like what is fair, what is, what is too much. Um, I would say that if, if you want something to succeed, the, my mental construct is look at the incentives. I think incentives rule the world. Everything is about incentives. Mm. So if, if you want like a certain currency or, or a certain monetary system to succeed, who is incentivized to support it and who is not incentivized to support it and, and possibly fight it. So you know, with something like Bitcoin, yeah, you might get a lot of people who then elect senators and then the senators will, will, will be supporting it. And you have ways where it does kind of end up having certain power. But if somebody owns too much and other people don't own enough, ultimately, like there's a barrier to how much the incentives um, can get distributed. So if somebody just tells you like, oh, we've created, you know, this is like better than Bitcoin. This is like the perfect asset. Um, that's fine. But like, as we know, if, if you're the only one who owns it or you and your friends are the ones, only ones who own it, it actually has no value because all you can do is trade with your friends and, and that really doesn't matter. So ultimately you have to think about distribution and we've seen the extreme thought process around something like Worldcoin. Do you know Worldcoin? They have this orb. Yeah. They're going around the world. Yeah. They're scanning people's irises yeah, and the, their concept is we will be able to airdrop everybody and create value through the distribution. The distribution will be so wide because everyone in the world will get, you know, this airdrop of coin <laughs> and you won't be able to like get two because your eyeball is only one. Yeah. But that doesn't work either because like, you know, even just give it a month and then somebody will go to Africa and like, you know, pay a few pennies and just like buy millions of these things while people in, you know, other countries just have like one. So like you said, there is no perfect. Um, there's only trying to kind of create something that works for that space and time. And it is possible that something like Bitcoin is kind of what we need now. I, I do think that gold is, this is of course controversial in the macro world, but I do think that gold has seen its best days behind it. And I think that we might not really get the resurgence of gold ever again. I think its narrative might be dead. Mm. Why do you, why do you think that? Um, uh, so. Bitcoin as a digital version of gold has so many superior characteristics. And this is talking to somebody who I literally had like 90% of my wealth in, in gold futures. I mean, I, I got delivered upon by mistake in like the vault in CME and I had to like accept, no like, you know, Bitcoin. Really? <laughs> I had to accept gold, like physical gold and like deal, figure out how to, how to deal with that. Um, the problem with gold is like aided distribution, you know, central banks, especially mm -hmm. the U S central bank just has way too much of it. They can control it. Um, two, it, it's obviously like, so hard to move around. It's so hard to send any to just you know, like verifying that it's real gold. Just all of these things have been talked about. I think 
scarcity being replicated in a digital version in Bitcoin is is just so much superior that in 20, 30 years where like the, the millennials and the Zoomers are the ones who, you know, are kind of in, in positions of power, um, I can't see like in 30 years that there's going to be that many believers in gold. And the only ones who have the incentive, like as we've said, to tell us that gold is like is is like the right hard money are, you know, people like the U.S. government who, who owns most of it. Uh, or China and Russia who are also buying it. So it's governments or, you know, people who are maybe like 70, 80, like 50, 60, 70 years old that, you know, will have to pass on their wealth. What does this mean for the rest of crypto in general, if Bitcoin ends up succeeding? Because one of the, um, one of the difficulties of investing in Bitcoin, actually, from a psychological standpoint, is that when it goes up, right, the dog coins, right, so to speak, to, to like broadly label a whole bunch of a category of, of tokens goes up even more, right? And then when Bitcoin, then when crypto is going down, the, the difficulty is like, well, you don't really want to even own Bitcoin, then you want to own cash, right? So walk me through like how you're thinking about the rest of the crypto ecosystem. Maybe you want to touch on ETH and what they're trying to build. And then like maybe this other whole kind of like speculative universe of coins out there as well, like as separate ideas. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've kind of written some articles about this and I presented it as a tragedy of the commons where, you know, there's, there's higher beta coins, like you said, like there's dog coins and higher beta coins. And if, uh, if people are just seeing Bitcoin go up and they seeing the digital ecosystems wealth go, you know, the market cap of all digital assets go from 1 trillion to 3 trillion and they want to ride that wave and they see like something being higher beta, they start on an individual basis being incentivized to just kind of move to the higher beta coins, you know, first ETH and then like the L1s and then kind of down the chain. And if everybody does that, then the whole system collapses upon itself and it kind of creates this like, mm. you know, everyone loses dynamic. Um, the way that's going to change in the long run is the people who own Bitcoin, who acquire the wealth are not going to be the people that are, you know, chasing gambling narratives and like trying to kind of run up money. The way this all changes in you know in 10 years, I'm very confident that we will no longer have that effect is because the people who will own Bitcoin at that point will be people who are trying to save money. Like they're trying to like save their purchasing power across the world. They're not looking to gamble. Right now, most of the Bitcoin is held by people who are kind of, yeah, like a lot of them believe in the, in, in the asset, but a lot of them kind of like riding, you know, like these waves and these cycles and, and they kind of want to create wealth for themselves that is not necessarily like philosophically aligned with, you know, just pur purchasing power. So that'll change. The holder base will change. And ultimately that that's what will drive the, uh, the change in like the, the correlation with some of these smaller coins. We do need to go through a, maybe like one, one more cycle. I don't think everyone's smart enough yet. I think there has to be like one more cycle of, you know, kind of getting into like all these like tail assets that, that eventually ex explode as we've seen. Um, yeah. But, you know, we, we have very interesting other things going on in crypto, which is what I really kind of find fascinating about crypto is that you, you have this combination of technology and incentives. So you have social constructs and you have code. Code is law. So, um, you know, Ethereum is going through a huge change. We can speculate as to whether this will be like a long lasting uh, push where Ethereum ends up, you know, really establishing itself as like a, a macro asset, if you will, where it becomes like either a commodity or a currency, both are possible. Mm. Um, it can become a currency if the, the amount of people that use Ethereum every day, uh, become enough, like a country and kind of like the, the amount of protocols, um, you know, end up looking like, like the GDP of a country. Um, so that that's possible, but it, it's, it's quite far away. I think like you can, 
you can even look now, um, despite the price increase, you know, it's quite cheap to use Ethereum right now. You can send transactions very cheaply. Gas space, uh, sorry, block space is, is not very expensive. Um, mm. But, you know, it's possible that Ethereum becomes a commodity uh, where block space does become very valuable. So these things remain to be seen. Uh, it's quite interesting to follow. There's a lot of dependencies that, that it relies upon. Uh, but then there's also yeah. all these other things happening in the crypto space. Um, we're ultimately looking for use cases for a lot of uh, the tech that's being built. So I, as a first step, we need the tech, right? We need L1s, we need bridges, we need like, you know, cheap and reliable and good wallets. We need all these things. So th these are being built and that's very important. What's going to matter is the apps ultimately. So mm. the next stage that we need to get to is super apps. Um, just like Facebook is being used by like, you know, billions of people, we're going to need those type of apps to find a use case where the decentralization nature or maybe like the, the web three, you know, tokenization, um, is useful enough that it becomes a core part of the app. And then crypto has billions of people using it because of the apps. Yeah, I would say, you know, one of the, so like that ultimate, that's the white whale, right? That's the, the adoption, the use cases, the actual people using this stuff for anything other than speculation. I will say like one thing that I haven't read Balaji's network state yet. I don't know if you've come across that or if you're familiar with the concept there. Um, but I've, 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 you know, I used to ask myself all the time, like, why does crypto need to be so tribal? I don't understand this. Like it eventually won't be like this. And I eventually have started, I, it's not the way I'd prefer it. But I, I think I've started to see this more of a feature than a bug, actually. And I actually see the value in it. And I don't think it's going to, I don't think that's going to change, actually. And you're going to get these kind of disparate communities. Um, but that's a whole other, we could do a whole podcast on that. I want to, I want to close things with uh, like a, your, you know, basically sum up what we've talked about so far, because I've kind of seen two different options here that the world could go in, right? And a lot of it is dictated by the government or the Fed or the powers that be. But option number one, we, we basically try to retrace all of the policies that we've undertaken in the last two years, right? So that would look like withdrawal of liquidity from the system. That would be some kind of mean reversion in terms of asset prices, some sort of prolonged recession, right? Where growth and like uh, supply and demand kind of level here. So that kind of tamps down on the inflation problem and we solve things that way. Then there's option B. And option B is we say, the debt is too much, right? Debt to GDP is too high. We're never going to work through this in an organic way. Um, it's politically impossible to, to have any measures of austerity. And instead, what we're going to do is kind of sneakily inflate the debt away. And that's where you see a lot of the stuff that we're talking about at CBDC um, and just more like UBI, just more government interventions to basically bridge the gap from, from A to B. Um, I, it sounds like you are kind of in that second camp B. So like, yes, no, are you in that second camp? And then like, more concretely, what does that look like specifically for asset prices in the next year? Because I gotta, I gotta get, gotta get a couple predictions here. Maybe if you want to talk about cryptos, equities, and then let's leave it there. Yeah, I mean the cat's out of the bag. I don't think A is possible. You know, when you inflate these assets, you you create like this opportunity for people to like go back into dollars. You know, why are they gonna just let you deflate them back and let you take everything back? Like it's too late. So you ultimately have to get creative. You have to go to option B. You have to keep intervening. Like this is the sad part. Like we obviously want free economies. We want capitalism, but that's not what we're gonna get. And it's not even what would work at this point. Like we do need very mm -hmm. smart intervention. We need like a very good chef who will just carefully like take a little bit here, take a little bit there and like 
just use a scalpel and kind of do it carefully. I don't think we're going to get very expert surgeons. Um, I mean, you see like Lagarde, they ask her a question, how are you going to get this under control? And she just has this like smirk, like, oh, you'll see, you'll see, like, it'll, it'll happen. It'll happen. Yeah. And, and like Powell is yeah. not much better. Like the, the, the amount of things that Powell um, says in some of these press conferences, which is just like shocking to hear. I mean, I have to agree with Larry Summers, the most recent press conference with, uh, with Powell, where he's talking about being at a neutral rate and like, you know, let's, we, we may like, we may already be there and like kind of some of these, like, well, we have 9.1% inflation. So I don't trust them that they will make good decisions. But the economy does need intervention. We can't just let the free economy take over right now, unfortunately. So I do think that we see attempts where it's a soft landing, where they just kind of carefully like inflate a little bit here and then redistribute, keep mm. keep people from rioting, take a little bit more yeah. and just try to keep everything going. And then the hard landing, which is kind of, they they do that, but they don't do it well. And that does cause like mass riots and people end up hungry and they just haven't done it well. And, and, you know, crime goes out of control. So there is like a bad and good scenario depending on how well they handle it, but it will definitely be B. It will not be A. They won't just be able to kind of suck it back in the way that it got released. Um, so asset prices, you know, they, they do depend a little bit on where on that spectrum they want to go between, um, you know, taking it slowly and, and going hard. Um, as we've seen, like Powell is an Uber dove, you know, the way he got elected or appointed, cause it's not an elected position is, you know, there is this beauty contest and they look at all the governors and the president just wants to, you know, it's, it's obviously <laughs> true of Trump, but it was true of like other presidents as well. Yeah. They want to choose the one. Sure. They want to say like, who's the dovish of them all? Who is the, who's the most dovish, you know, out of everybody. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Exactly. Who's the most dovish? So Yellen was the most dovish for a while. So she got the spot. Mm. And then Powell kind of, you know, showed that he was even more dovish. Mm. So despite being bullied by Trump, Trump let him carry on because he knew that he was the most dovish. And we just saw that, you know, he showed his true colors. So I think asset prices kind of just fluctuate and go sideways in, in cycles. I think they can't go up too much. Um, I would sell every like, substantial rally because every substantial rally will prolong the inflation problem that we'll have to get uh, taken care of. And they can't drop completely because at some point they will show their true selves. It will become very dovish. So I think equities specifically go sideways in, in this kind of like sine wave and that can happen. It's hard to predict a horizon, but I think like at least, you know, for the next year and it could, it could be much longer than a year. But at least like within that horizon, we'll kind of see these like sine waves um, on, on equities. Um, bonds, I think, will have a collapse at some point. And that's where it gets really interesting. Um, mm. We will possibly see the concept of yield curve control if no one is willing to buy U.S. debt. And that will only happen once the fiscal policy and the government spending starts up again. So um, there will be this concept of other countries saying they will no longer buy U.S. debt. And then who's going to buy it? So we have seen historical contexts where they force pensions to buy them. They force banks to buy them. Like the local population is forced to actually buy these things because nobody will buy them. And it's possible that we get to something like that. Um, so I would say uh, bonds still have room to go down. And especially the long end, at some point we'll have a crisis on the long end. Um, crypto, I think, will outperform equities. Um, there is more kind of potential for returns there. And I think we're seeing increasing amounts of um, 
mindshare kind of getting absorbed into crypto. So I do think that tactically you can do well in crypto, but you know, it's hard to choose the right coins. And I would say right now, I don't think it's a time to go like super long, even, even like the, the prime assets. Um, I do believe that uh, crypto is ultimately driven by reflexivity. And what I ask myself every morning is, do I have FOMO right now? Like, am I worried that if I don't buy like, you know, X amount of Bitcoin that I could, I, I am able to purchase, like, let's say I can afford like, you know, 10 Bitcoin. If I don't buy the 10 Bitcoin right now, I might, do I have FOMO that like in a month, the price will be like, I, I will be like, like, you know, like this meme on Twitter that I will be sidelined in fiat. Am I, am I, am I scared? I will be sidelined in fiat. I will no longer be able to buy 10 Bitcoin in, in a month. Mm. If so, then like I should do something about it. But right now I don't feel any FOMO. I think like we're going to have like more dips and, and more trouble ahead. So un until like there's like a real sense of FOMO, um, I think crypto is still going to stay moderate, but at some point it, it will shoot up. Awesome. Jordi, that's sage advice. Um, unfortunately, I could feel like we could keep talking for two more hours, but that is all the time we have. Um, if folks want to find out more about you, figure out what you're doing, your fun, follow you on Twitter, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, uh, at, game, at Game Theorizing, um, Twitter is the best way to find me. Awesome. Jordi, this has been a ton of fun, my friend. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Mike.